Welcome, folks, to another episode of the Lessons from the Cockpit show. I am your host, Mark Hacera, and for over 60 years, my passion has been everything aviation. I'm an airplane nerd. I grew up making model planes. I never grew out of it, and I'm glad I didn't. On the Lessons from the Cockpit show, we debrief some of the most fascinating and intriguing pilots, aircrew members, maintainers, and aviation enthusiasts from all over the world. On our show, we hear some of their great stories, but more importantly, what did they learn from going through these extraordinary and extreme military, commercial, and general aviation experiences? These stories and lessons learned give our listeners a better appreciation for how does the aviation world work and increases critical thinking skills both in the air and on the ground. And some of these stories and events you're gonna hear for the very first time to include today, because I had no idea Sea King Helicopters had this mission. This is our second part with Commander Steve Bates, an SH-3 Sea King helicopter pilot. And he's gonna tell us the history of the Sea King helicopter. The Lessons from the Cockpit Show is supported by Wall Pilot, custom aviation art for the walls of your home, office, or hangar. Please, folks, go to our website, wallpilot.com. Take a look at some of the ready-to-print graphics. We're up to like 125 of them. We also do custom graphics in four, six, eight-foot airplanes because you can peel off and stick to the walls of your home, office, or hangar. We've done a 30-footer before, and these are extremely detailed to the point I've even got the arming handles on the Sidewinder missiles on the F-15s. And that's where we get our financial support for the Lessons from the Cockpit show. So let's get right into it. Grab an adult beverage of your choice, sit down, strap in, and let's talk about SH-3 Sea King helicopters with former Commander Steve Bates. Hey, Steve, one of the questions I want to ask you is, and I'm sure you know the history Tell us the history of the Sikorsky Sea King helicopter, because it's done a lot of different missions over its lifespan. It has, Mark. I'm glad you asked the question because we launched right into my career and how I use the aircraft, uh, what my community used it for. I would have been remiss not to talk about what the the original purpose of the H3 Sea King was for. And all Um, your ASW guys would have come down on top of you if you hadn't. Probably. (laughs) If not you, you probably would have said, here's his email, talk to him <laughs> but um in the 1950s i found this interesting as i looked into this i found a little book on the h3 that i actually had for years and just hadn't really opened it up and looked through it but in the 1950s the navy was using the army h-34 choctaw to do in pairs they had to use two aircraft to conduct the hunter killer mission. One would do the hunting. And fortunately we didn't have to worry about this, but had the balloon gone up, a second one would have had to do the killer mission uh, because the Choctaw was, it had a nose mounted uh, reciprocating piston engine. The Navy put out a request for proposal for a helicopter that could uh, that would use the new turboshaft engine at the time and could perform both missions with with one airframe because the Soviet obviously the Soviet submarine threat in the 50s is growing and with the Choctaw the space and payload limitations prevented one aircraft from doing the mission the both the hunter killer mission. So as a result, Sikorsky came up with uh, what their civilian designator is to this day, the S-61. There were a couple of prototypes that were built, and that would eventually become the SH-3 Alpha model. It is a watertight hull, and if you look at one nose on, you will see that it is curved, and it comes to a point very much like a ship. It was designed for water entry, and it's got watertight doors because there's an electronics compartment in the nose of that aircraft. And that I didn't is- know that. Yeah, there's all kinds of stuff in that nose underneath the pilot's feet and just forward of their feet. Um, so, yeah, it was watertight hull, a five-bladed main and tail rotor system with uh, the turbine engines. And the, the SH-3 Alpha had the two engines made by General Electric, the T-58GE-8. That was actually an improvement over the Dash-6 engine that the prototypes used. Uh, the Dash-6 engines had a 1050 shaft horsepower, the Dash 8s, it went up to 1250. And those are the engines that I was using in the SH3 Golf that I flew that I'll get to here in a few minutes. Mm -hmm. That was the original version. 
Um, they created a CH-3-alpha, which was an amphibious cargo transport version built for the Navy. That Sikorsky's designator for that was the S-61-alpha. And the cabin could accommodate any one of the following, up to 26 troops, 15 litters, 8,000 pounds of cargo. And three of these, and Mark, I have to say, I was fascinated to find out how much the Air Force was involved in this as I read into this. Three of those CH-3 Alpha models were sent to the Air Force, and they were eventually redesignated CH-3 Bravos. And here's how that came about. So in 1962, the Air Force decided that they needed, they had a need for helicopter with a range and payload to resupply what I sent you a text of. I don't know if you had a chance to look at that picture. Do you know what those are? Hang on. Let me take a look. Senate, I think last night or the night before I sent you a picture of something. And oh, yeah, yeah. It's it's those. Yeah. Those big domes with radar or something underneath them or listening devices. Yeah. They're called Texas Tower radar sites. I think there was one in the Gulf of Mexico, but there were several off the coast of New England. And they wanted to be able to go out and resupply those Texas Tower radar sites as well as recover drones. You got that picture because I Googled Texas Tower radar and Oddly enough, you will see if you zoom in a little bit on the left side, there is an Air Force H3, one of those. I see that on the platform. So that was kind of fortuitous in my Google search the other with big USAF across the tail. That's right. Apparently, they were so impressed with the three CH3s they got that they asked, of course, he to build three more uh, for the resupply of these radar sites. And I'm glad I read this, Mark, after I was done with my Navy career because I could have gotten a little bit bitter. But (laughs) this Air Force version had Dash 10 engines, which had 1,400 shaft horsepower. More power than the thing I was flying in the 80s and 90s. So, yeah, I could have got a little bitter over that one. Um, let's see some other things. Damn those Air Force guys. <laughs> yeah, you guys got the procurement thing down. You got the creature comforts good. <laughs> yeah, every once um, in a while, we actually win a few of those battles, don't we? Yeah. Oh, I'd say more than once in a while. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so this CH3 Bravo, it had a max loaded weight of 20,000 pounds, top speed of 159 miles an hour or 138 knots, which is faster. They had downgraded that when I was flying it because it was much older and they didn't want to beat up. And you'll you'll appreciate this little factoid. The number four CH-3 Bravo that the Air Force, uh-huh. it flew from Otis Air Force Base on Cape Cod, Massachusetts to Paris, France in a flight that began on the 27th of May and ended the 5th of June in 1963. So I'm a year old when this is happening. It took a total of 35 and a half hours It included stops in Labrador, Canada, Greenland, Iceland, and Scotland. And I don't know if it still holds, probably not, but I don't know if it's been attempted. But at the time, that flight broke the helicopter record for speed and distance traveled for an Atlantic crossing. I did not know that. That's amazing. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah, there were some neat little things. There were a lot of firsts with the H3. It did set some land speed records, I think, uh, when that first H3 version came out. But yeah, pretty neat little versatile aircraft. Is this the same one that we used for rescue during the Vietnam War? The Jolly Green Giants are a a derivation of one of the follow-on models uh, that I will talk about here in a second. I'm going to give you most, but not all, because there are several other models. We could talk about this for another oh, hour, yeah. minutes, but I don't want to do that to you. So this is all great history, though, because, you know, I, I'll be honest with you. I know a lot of history of airplanes, but not helicopters. So and a lot of my listeners have never heard this stuff, like like going from to Paris, for crying out loud. This right. is great stuff. Yeah. And you don't want to get lost. And you probably have to write Sikorsky and really dig and do some research to find some of this stuff. But I happen to have this little handy book that I had had for years. And until I was getting ready to talk with you, I hadn't really looked through it. So I thought, well, let me look into some of this history. And it was some pretty neat stuff. Oh, it really yeah. the Air Force gets the Bravo model. And obviously the Navy updating the, the Hilo to different versions, correct? Uh, that Well, Sikorsky would do that. The Navy would continue to ask for additional models. Yeah, the Air Force is not done with this. I will I'll talk about that momentarily. Okay. Um, but before I leave the CH3 Alpha that I talked about, uh-huh. um, that was really the derivation for the VH3 Alpha. That was an aircraft that I flew. We didn't talk about that when we talked about my career. That was one of the missions my squadron had. 
And the eight of these CH3 alpha models were specially fitted with galleys, air conditioning, some airline type seats, toilets, uh, and some additional radios for actual functional purposes. And an auxiliary power unit, an APU was installed on the starboard sponson. These were presidential aircraft. They were flown by Kennedy through, let's see, Ford got new ones. So that would be, well, through Ford. And then in 1976, Ford would get new ones that would be designated VH3 Deltas. And I can talk a little bit about those variances here in a minute, but. The famous green airplanes, that you know, helicopters. Yeah. Marine me. One. Marine yeah. One. Yeah. The famous green and white helicopters that land on the White House front lawn. Yeah, it was originally a joint U.S. Army unit that uh, uh, that flew these things. And, and it's somewhere along the line. I didn't get time to research this, but uh, the Marine Corps apparently took that uh, mission solely over as HMX-1, uh, the presidential helicopter unit there. Uh, they're based out of Quantico, Virginia. So Ford gets new ones. Um, now, back to the H-3 Charlie. So apparently the Air Force was impressed enough with the H-3 Bravos that they got that in late 1962, later that same year, um, they issued an RFP, a request for proposal for a helicopter that could lift 7,000 pounds and be able to load cargo as large as a standard Jeep. So the Sikorsky variant that they came up with, they designated the S61R Romeo. Uh um, And that was a development of an actual, an earlier Sikorsky design that they were doing for the Marine Corps. Uh, And it was a pretty extensive modification because the the main one, there were several others, but the main one was that the, the fuselage was redesigned to have a hydraulically operated rear loading cargo ramp for Jeeps and other large cargo to be loaded up on, drive right up onto. Really? And to answer your question about the Jolly Green Giant, this version, this H3 Charlie model, was the genesis of the H3 Echo Jolly Green Giant of Vietnam War fame. And what the Coast Guard would eventually get, the H3 Foxtrot Pelican. They both had that rear ramp. Yeah. And those were derivations of the CH3 Charlie model. So Sikorsky's really had quite a, they had quite the run on this H3 and all its variants. They really, uh, they, they made some hay, so to oh, speak. With this yeah. One. And um, I mean, think of all of the pilots that during the Vietnam War were saved by that helicopter. Yeah. And there were, there were a lot of, obviously there were some modifications to the Jolly Green Giant. Um, the main ones being armor. To protect the crew and of course guns there were other things there were tools like a force penetrator that would go down through the trees so that the pilot could get on it and, and be extracted from the the jungle you know hill air force base has one on display up there they have they have that and they also have the pavlo in front of it and they've got uh-huh. the ramp down in the back so you can see up uh through the inside of the of the helo and, that would be interesting to be able to walk inside one of those because I'm curious as to how much bigger that cargo space is than the H3, the SH3 that I flew. I'd be you, curious to see that. You know what's amazing about the Hill Air Force Base Museum, Steve, is they have an open cockpit day where they open certain airplanes. The SR-71, they always do that one because everybody always wants to see down inside that right. thing, okay? <laughs> but they opened up the SH-3 so that people could go up the ramp and out the door. So you could actually go through the whole thing. And I remember walking through it and seeing, you know, of course, you know, all the cables and lines and everything like that. And I thought, you know, this is pretty roomy in here. And of course the, uh, the winch, you know, for hauling people up and down was right there too. It was amazing to see the inside of that. Of course, then when you walked into the pave I mean, it was massive. It was a big helicopter, but it was just amazing to see that. And this particular one, if I remember right, had flown during Vietnam, uh, had flown post-Vietnam. And, you know, as you know, the Air Force used that thing for a very long time. Yeah, it's got some tenure for sure. There's a lot of stories about guys that were flying during the Vietnam War that got picked up by that helicopter out of the jungles of even North Vietnam. It's an amazing history of rescue and A1 Sandy Sky Raiders escorting them in and escorting them out and uh, numerous things. So Yeah, those guys had some chops because that was a very non-permissive environment to have to go into to, to, to rescue people. So Oh, it those, really was. 
Yeah, it, it really it, was amazing what they did. I think there were a couple books. Um, Chicken Hawk, his last name was Mason. He wrote a book about. Uh, it's got a great description, I think, of the the startup sequence of an H three. I read it and thought, oh man, yeah, I do that. <laughs> There's another one called North Star, I think, that talks about. Um, I believe it's been a long time since I read it, Mark, but I think uh, that also deals with rescue in, in the Vietnam War. The Navy is updating and upgrading theirs, obviously, at the same time. So talk to us a little bit about the different upgrades that you're going through. And I'm sure a lot of them is based on mission sets that are evolving in the Navy. The next variant they came up with was the Delta model, the SH-3 Delta. Uh, And that started by taking one of the Alpha models off the 1966 production line. Uh, they fitted it with those Dash 10 engines that I was so jealous of that the Air Force had <laughs> on that. I had an additional 140-gallon fuel tank, and this had a larger horizontal stabilizer, which you don't see, I think, in that picture I sent you was on the no. starboard side opposite the tail rotor. Yeah. There's like a little wing. It's a little horizontal yeah. stabilizer. Yeah. It's bigger than the other version, so it had a supporting strut that supported the bottom of that uh, stabilizer. Oh, yeah. It was mounted into the airframe on the opposite of the tail rotor side. It had, now I'm starting to speak out of my depth here because I did <laughs> do this ASW mission, which the uh, at the time I was flying at the HS squadrons, the helicopter anti-submarine warfare squadrons. You may get some hits from people correcting me on some things, but uh, what, I read, okay. what I was able to research was it had a variable torpedo launch rails installed, which allowed torpedoes to be launched while it was in a hover. The torpedo payload was reduced from the original four that the alpha model could carry to two. And I assume that's because they've added a 140-gallon fuel tank and there's more weight to the aircraft now because uh, they've added other equipment. The two of these alpha models were, were converted, and then there were 73 deltas that were produced on the production line by Sikorsky for a total of 75 of these delta models. Now, I was able to confirm that this aircraft, this H-3, has been licensed to be produced by England, uh-huh. by Western helicopters, yeah. and by Italy, Augusta in Italy makes it. Uh, I did read in Wikipedia that great paragon of truth, but I can't... <laughs> I can't validate it or verify it. That also, this Mitsubishi is licensed to produce it in Japan. I just don't, I can't. So if anyone howls about that, just again, that was just something I read. It's a Wikipedia-ism, if you will. And you know what? I downloaded a lot of pictures of the different international users. And boy, like the Brits, they put a lot of stuff on that thing and used it a lot, particularly in the Falklands War, okay? Yeah, but I, I remember flying into Jazdaf bases in Japan and seeing these things there on the ramp and yeah. and doing the things that they that we were doing with them too. This helicopter was used in a lot of places doing a lot of things, you know, shuttling Royal Marines around doing rescue off the coast of Japan. And it was doing it for a long time. It was. And I will uh when I wrap up talking about these various uh yeah. versions. Um, I will point something out about that, something I I can't verify, but hold that thought. I'll talk about that in a few minutes. Hey, I just thought of something. So how much gas do you burn like per hour on a normal mission? Do you remember by chance? Boy, you're asking me to go in the way, way, way back machine. Uh, (laughs) We used to fuel it up to about 3,500, 4,000 pounds. Okay. And you burn about a thousand pounds an hour. Typically. Now, if you're uh-huh. in a hunger, yeah, that's requiring more power. So you're going to burn a little bit more. But, you know, the, the gouge, in, to use Navy terminology, was yeah. that you burn about a thousand pounds an hour flying the H3. So it had about a three to four hour set of legs on it per uh, bag of gas. So tell me something. Did that change when you were hovering versus when you were moving forward? Did the, the, the fuel consumption change noticeably or did it pretty much stay the same uh, depending on? the flight conditions you were in. It it would change whether it's significant. It's hard to say if you're on a mission and this is where the uh, ASW guys could help you out there because they would be in a hover a lot, dipping sonar, dropping sauna buoys. The mission I was on in the community I served in, you know, you'd hover long enough to land on the deck or land wherever you were. (laughs) You didn't typically hover extended, extended periods. 
time. We did it sometimes when you're recovering drones or stuff like that. But I was just uh, curious. But yeah, but the hover definitely required more uh, required more power, so it would definitely uh, burn gas. You know, more gas per hour. You know what, Steve? I flew the uh, I flew this. You'd call it Seahawk. We call it Pavehawk. The sixty, the Army's yeah. sixty simulator that they put in a uh, container. They call it Boss. You know, I could fly it pretty good, actually, you know, for a tanker guy, a ham-fisted tanker guy. I sucked at hovering. Yeah. I couldn't hover to save my life, Steve. Why is hovering so hard to do? I, I think it's maybe a twofold thing. Uh, mm -hmm. First of all, rudder inputs in a helicopter are much more critical than a fixed wing aircraft. Essentially, a lot of most of the time you can fly with your feet on the on the floor in a fixed wing aircraft, correct? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and a helicopter pedal inputs are key. You know, you're counteracting that main rotor torque with those yes. rudder pedals that are bringing inputs into the tail rotor, which is doing that. Yeah. So it's constantly changing. And if you get a gust of wind or the wind shifts, it's going to you know change that. And the other thing I think is it's just technique and how you're taught, Mark, because when I was a student and then I use this when I was an instructor, I, I had an instructor show me that you don't need to be making big inputs with the stick, with the cyclic in, in helicopter terminology. Mm -hmm. And he just he really moved that stick around rapidly in just a little one inch circle. And the aircraft stays pretty much where it is. You do have to be a little bit uh, delicate, a little more uh, delicate on the pedals, uh, the yeah. rudder pedals. But otherwise, that that's really it. I think it's because the rudder inputs, rudder pedal inputs are much more critical to rotary wing aircraft than they are to fixed wing, uh, particularly when it comes to hovering. And this particular gentleman had flown with the 160th SOAR. So he's one of uh, those kind of guys, you know. And he, he would uh, tell me, he goes, he goes, Mark. I used to fly this two fingers and a thumb. Yeah. And uh, he just said, stay over the numbers. And I was all over the place. Yeah. As long as we were moving forward or backward or sideways, I could I could do that. But man, I tell you, hovering was hard, Steve. Yeah. It that really, was a very hard concept to grasp. And I think over-controlling to your your. That's exactly what I was and doing. That's what most people do, especially young students, brand new to it. You know, they're a little nervous, so they're squeezing the black out of the stick grip there. And um, it, it's a very finesse type of flying, especially. And I do remember absolutely right. The rudder pedal inputs were <laughs> were kicking my butt. Okay, yeah, because. Yeah. <laughs> I was going left and right all over everywhere. And that was just, that was very humbling. I'll just put it that way. Yeah. And every time you move the collective to, you know, raise or lower your uh, altitude, yeah. you're changing the power setting, which is requiring a corresponding input in the pedals, right? You push the collective down, you need to put in uh, some right pedal to keep the nose straight. You pull it up, you got to put left pedal because you're putting torque on that, yeah. uh, the engines and transmission and so forth, that it's going to cause that yaw. Every little motion with that collective is going to cause yaw. So you're constantly, it's definitely a little more complex, still requires a little bit more uh, seat of the pants type flying. That's totally counterintuitive to a fixed wing guy or gal, because you're like, like you said, most of the time I had my feet on the floor. Right. And, and I remember you this instructor. Yeah. And I remember this instructor guy telling me, okay, you're not using the rudder enough. And I'm like, that's like totally foreign to a guy that flies fixed wings. So. Okay. So, so continue with your conversation about the, about, tell us more about these versions that continue to come out of the Hilo. Okay. Um, the net, I'll talk about two more. There are multiple, multiple, yeah. other, but just, just two more okay. um, to, to pretty well cover the, the bulk of it. And it's yeah. um, the SH3 golf model, which is what I have a significant amount of my time in. So that first came out in 1971. The Navy began conversion of 11 of their alpha models and Delta airframes into basically a utility version. So they, the previous were ASW birds yeah. uh, and they designated basically they stripped out all the ASW gear, the sonar station, all the, you know, the MAD, the magnetic anomaly detector and so forth. Anything ASW related was pretty much stripped out to make it a utility version. It was fitted with a an improved helicopter in-flight refueling system, a hyper system. That's kind of an interesting thing. I don't know. If I'd have to Google that to find pictures. But basically, there are some ships like cruisers that were too small to accommodate uh, an H3 landing on it. Uh -huh. So you could hover over that flight deck area they had 
you'd use the rescue hoist to haul up the fuel hose from the ship. And then there was a fitting in the floor of the uh, the Gulf model. The, and you plug in the fuel holes and, and pump away. Uh, you did not want to have to rely on that because if it for some reason didn't work, you were going to be, you know, out of altitude, airspeed and ideas in a hurry. <laughs> so we, didn't, we practiced it once, but we didn't really exercise that system too much at all. Not when Bobbing I was in the ocean. <laughs> right. Right. If, in a pinch, if you absolutely needed it, but if you absolutely needed it, you probably didn't uh, plan and execute yeah. the mission to begin with properly. But so that is the golf. Hey, let's back up here just a second. You're refueling sure. from a hose that you winched up off of the deck of the ship. So you're basically hovering over the ship or you're like in formation with the ship, aren't you? Exactly. I mean, the ship isn't the ship isn't stopped for you to do this. Yep. So that's a that's a pretty challenging environment to be flying. Yeah. Particularly, particularly, I would think if you had rough seas. Yeah, that would be tough. Landing on the deck was very difficult in rough seas. Um, I had one experience where we, in the Persian Gulf of all places, it was winter time. The ship has what are, you know, called pitch and roll limits mm -hmm. and there's numerical designations. And I think the ship said that they were at pitch three, roll five. So that deck was really moving. We got aboard and we started unloading things, but it was mostly mail. And as much as the troops and the sailors liked mail, this was a very uncomfortable position to be in because those tie down chains are only rated at about 10,000 pounds. We, in the middle of it, we stopped. We did not offload all. It was just getting too uncomfortable. We said, we got to get off this thing because this is not at all comfortable. Yeah, it'd be very difficult to heifer, I would think. But you're basically, yeah, it's in reasonable seas. You're flying a 20 knot formation flight with the ship or whatever speed it's going. Right. And that could be interesting because you can get in and out of, you know, depending upon the ship speed, you get in and out of this thing called translational lift. But um, I don't recall that ever being an issue uh, when I was doing that. But not all that hard to, to hover around the ship. It's, it's getting it down the flight deck as you're coming down. You don't want a lot of lateral movements or forward movements. Uh, the first time I ever landed on the deck of a ship, I just could not get used to that hangar deck, that hangar bay or that close to me. And I was just squeezing the life out of the stick. And I drifted forward when we finally landed. Um, the ship has a circular, circular uh, paint job there on the flight deck with some uh, diagonal lines. And there are two hash marks that in the case of the H3, the main mount should be in between. I was forward of those about a foot or two. And the landing signal... Uh, men who was working, who was, who was directing me down. We finally yeah. got it on the deck. He looked up at the blade tips and at the hangar deck, and he kind of did one of these, like you're about, you know, this. <laughs> you're about this far. And then kind of wiped his forehead in a <laughs> uh, gesture. But it, it came to be very fun. But initially, I was not comfortable with that, you know, that superstructure of the ship being that close to the blades. And um, you know what, Steve, I've been on several Aegis cruisers and destroyers, and mm -hmm. I found that fascinating to go back to the fantail and see all that. Now, one of the other things that I noticed too, is there's some kind of winch system that pulls you guys down or, or is that to keep you in place? That is a system unique to the SH-60 that replaced the H3. Okay. We did not have that. Uh, it was called, I believe, a RAST system, a recovery and something. I forget the, what the acronym is yeah. for, but that was for the, the H60 okay. Uh, okay. version. And see, that makes sense because several of these ships had one or two helicopters that they would hold in their hangar bay. I just remember walking out and seeing that thing. And I'm like, what in the world is this? And he goes, oh, yeah, we come out here, we hook the helo to it, and we winch it down. And yeah. Like, you do what? He goes, and yeah, that's we winch for it down. rough seas as well, I believe. Again, yeah, that's guy. what he said. He said it's for rough seas, you know, and it's just to help the helo get down. And we have a, a pole with this big hook on it that has the line on the end, and we reach up and hook the bottom of the helo down and then just winch it down onto the onto the deck. And I'm like going, yeesh. Yeah, I never thought to ask some of my buddies who flew that aircraft and that system, but I would not be comfortable with that because I know that's unnatural to a pilot, isn't it? OK, well, well the ship's got control of the helicopter now. Right. You know? And the ship, you know, if it's in rough seas, you know, the fantail, the rear of the ship might come up 
But then when it comes down, I would worry that it would really yank, you know, really oh, yeah. caught that cable. And that wouldn't be a good place to be at all for me. So I will have to ask some of my buddies who used to fly that H60 and use that system, what their experience with that was, because I never did think to ask them. And you know what, Steve, a lot of our listeners don't realize, you know, in the airplane, my airplane, we had roll pitch and yaw. Everybody has heard that. Yeah. But when you're on a ship, you have roll pitch, yaw, heave and sway yeah and that you have to deal with you know and i remember being on the uss enterprise when a tropical depression had just gone through the capes the day before oh boy that's, that's the only time steve that i've been on an aircraft carrier where i was having to really hold myself up going down the passageway i remember talking to one of the guys he goes yeah he goes this is one of those instances where we don't let the nuggets fly and I'm like, yeah. I, I, and I, and I said, I don't understand all this. He goes, yeah, you have roll pitch and yaw, but we have heave where the ship's deck is going up and down. The front goes up, the back goes down and then they switch, you know? And then he says, you have to remember it sways back and forth, left and right, as well as roll pitch and yaw. And I'm sure you've had to land in some nasty conditions where you're dealing with that. Do you remember any particular situation or instance where you, you were dealing with pitch and, you know, heave and sway coming aboard the ship? In the times I operated with a carrier, we were yeah. never in seas like that. You know, my experience on a carrier is if the seas were, you know, they got moderately choppy. Yeah. You're walking down the passageway and you might once in a while feel kind of a light feeling in your stomach. Like, oh, that was interesting. Yeah. But the carrier is a big, big ship. And you yeah. don't typically see that on the small boys, the destroyers, the frigates. Yeah. And that that experience I told you about in, in the Gulf where we landed and we didn't finish unloading mail. Yeah. That was you're seeing the superstructure just moving around, you know, doing this. Yeah. Uh, you know, the aviators call it like a Dutch roll, but uh, yeah, <laughs> doing all kinds of motion and it's not comfortable. But that's that heave and sway. Like you said, Dutch roll, right. that's kind of like heave and sway to a, to a pilot. And I just remember being in, I was actually in pry fly watching the jets come in and it was all of the really experienced guys. They just said, nope, uh -uh, we're not letting the nuggets fly today because it's just so nasty. Okay. What year was were you on the Enterprise? I was on the Enterprise in 2001. This is the crazy thing. Okay. They were deploying to the Middle East, and this was March, April of 2001, and this was their uh, go-to-war deployment. This was their. This was when they were out, and 9/11 happened. Okay. And they ended up staying out a little extra time. The CAG and the DCAG. I had taken our weapons school students out there we had gone out to sea with the ship from the harbor but we got a cod ride back in off of the ship because it was turning east to deploy man that was amazing because this tropical depression had gone through the day prior and we put all of our stuff on the ship and it was pouring rain Oh, and the winds were blowing about 35, 40 miles an hour. I mean, it was nasty. And so all of our students are like going, Sluggo, we're going out to sea in this. And I go, yep, you guys are going to get to see this and experience this like nobody else. For Air Force guys, Steve, that gave us a much greater appreciation of what naval aviation can be because of <laughs> the air wing was coming in. And guys were landing with only like a two or three second look at the deck because of the low clouds and the rain. But the fascinating thing was, Steve, 19-year-old kids were out there in that kind of conditions, recovering jets, parking jets, getting them ready, getting them down below. And I'll never forget the next day we were still on board, Steve, and that thing was still rocking like a cork. And it's a carrier. Yeah. So you can imagine how rough the seas were they were doing these circles off the coast of virginia beach because they had these emitters on shore and they were testing the slick 32 system the esm system on the ship and so we were still aboard all of my air force tanker bubbas in that class that came off went holy smokes man i got a new appreciation for what these guys go through because yeah. they got to see it all. Roll pitch, yaw, heave, and sway. 
Yeah, it can get kind of dicey. Oh, I, 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 yeah. And yeah. I asked when you were on the enterprise, because um, you may know that one of your podcast colleagues, Jello, yeah. uh, over on the Fighter Pilot podcast, yeah, uh, he was part, he was in a special that PBS did. Uh, it was later in that decade. I, I forget whether it was 2004, might have been 2008. But anyway, later, several years after you were on it, they did a special, but they were off of Perth, off the West Coast of Australia. And they were in some really unusual swells where the it was just I remember that up and down. And that is, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. And the average American, I don't know if they realize what some of these, you know, 19 year old guys and girls right out of high school are doing. And the the air the flight deck of an aircraft carrier, if I don't think it's probably changed much, but it is typically ranked in the top two or three most dangerous places to work in the world. And when it's not number one, it's usually behind like a, a coal mine or something like that. <laughs> It's an amazing uh, ballet, well-orchestrated ballet that happens when flight operations are going on. And see, that was the really crazy thing about this was, you're right, everything was extremely well-orchestrated. Everybody knew exactly what they had to do based on the conditions of the rain, the wind, the short look that the pilots had because of the low ceilings, and everybody was doing it. Now, not a lot of airplanes came aboard. As soon as they landed, they immediately went forward went on the elevators, went down, and they tied them down in the hangar deck. But man, we were on the deck and we got to see the nose pitch up. And of course, it dips down below the horizon, like in that PBS special. And it, yeah. in that PBS special, I remember this. I remember this very well. Seeing it go way down, all right? And then coming way back up. Uh, I remember to it, there was some young pilots in that air wing. They said, uh, you're not going to fly tonight because yeah. we're still dealing with this. I think the right. CEO, one of the squadrons told one of his uh, more junior pilots, it was her first deployment. Yeah. He told her, you're going to understand why here in about 20 minutes when these guys try and get back aboard, why I'm doing this. You bolter might after bolter, after bolter, after yeah. bolter because yeah. of what was going on. And see, to, to all of my listeners out there and to the American pub, the general public just doesn't understand what it means to be on this piece of metal floating in the ocean where the ocean has control of you. <laughs> really, yeah. That was an amazing experience, Steve. I had been on a number of carriers before that already, but I had never experienced that where I'd seen airplanes literally pop out of the weather with a two or three second look at the deck come in and land we had a couple guys bolter you know a couple airplanes bolter but oh my gosh it gave me a greater appreciation for what naval aviation goes through big time yeah it, it is it's pretty amazing it really is it, yeah Okay, so you flew the golf version. Was there any other versions that came out after the golf version? Uh, there was uh, the hotel. Um, the hotel model, also in 1971, the same year the golf conversions began, uh, Sikorsky announced that they would be doing an improved version of the golf for the Navy. So 11 golf models, excuse me, golf models were sent to Sikorsky plant in Stratford, Connecticut for conversion. Uh, this included the Dash 10 engines. I just couldn't seem to get those Dash 10 engines on my aircraft for some years. They added some addition, let's see, some additional ASW equipment, similar to what was in the Delta model. Uh -huh. uh, and again, I'm going to start getting out of my depth, but this is what I could find. It included an AQS-81 uh, MAD towed body, the magnet magnetic anomaly detector. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've discussed that in any other episode. Yeah, that's that bullet looking like thing that they had on one of the on one of the sponsors, wasn't it? Yeah, it's this it was, as I recall, it was red and yellow and it looks like an oversized uh, badminton birdie. Yes, yes, yes. Extended one. And, you know, they would haul that thing around and basically, you know, the Earth has a magnetic field. And if some big object like a submarine were to pass by underneath the water, this piece of equipment could detect, you know, the anomaly it created in that yeah. magnetic field. They'd be able to, you know, identify it based on that or know that there was something there. Um, it also had dipping sonar. They added smoke launchers to the port sponson. And let's see, it had an external chaff and flare dispenser fitted to the- What were port. the smoke launchers for? Um, they would mark smoke, like search and rescue. Oh, uh, got it. Got it. Pilots might see them or the air crew and they'd say, okay, get standby to mark on top. 
uh, mark and they'd say smokes away and then they they would fly their pattern or they'd be, you know, to 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 mark sauna buoys, I suppose. Yeah. Basically to ID a certain location over okay. the ocean so you don't have a whole lot of visual cues out there. Yeah, yeah. Chaff and flare dispensers mounted the port aft fuselage. It had a 600 mile range due to a third fuel cell, bringing the fuel capacity to 840 gallons or 5,460 pounds. Wow. Um, the sponsons were plumbed for an external fuel tank capability. I think I ever flew with that. And it had uh, ice shield deflectors that were first, I believe, installed on the HH3. Um, that to protect the intakes from ice or other, you know, yeah. fog, stones, birds, whatever. Yeah. Um, this the hotel did have a four Mark Forty Six aerial torpedo capacity, and uh, it was nuke capable. Now I don't know much about nukes, but what I did read was that it was capable of delivering the B fifty seven or the B sixty one nuclear weapon. You may know more about that than me. I know about B sixty ones, but Steve, I had no idea if you dropped those from a helicopter. Yeah, and it was probably a uh, well. Again, uh, I will be speaking out of my depth. You need an, one of the ASW types to talk to it, but uh, I think that torpedoes could be nuclearized, yeah. as it were. But I don't know if these are actual air launched. You know, they go to altitude, yeah. and drop one of these. I don't imagine you'd escape in a helicopter. That's what I was just do. thinking, Steve. I was just thinking. Yeah. Well, this is a one-way mission. <laughs> yeah. Now. With the B-61, see, I was at Pease Air Force Base with FB-111s, and of course, they were carrying B-61 bombs. We called them the dial-a-yield bomb because you could dial up or dial down the megatons of the explosion, okay? Wow. When you said that, you could carry B-61 on the helo, I went, oh my gosh, wait a minute. That's a whole new perspective that I didn't even think about. But of course, during the time period where we're talking, 70s, 80s, and, and so forth, I could see that because what happens if some submarine gets, Russian submarine gets cocky in the med or, or the balloon goes up, you know? Yeah. A lot, of my, a lot of my Navy buddies that flew during that time period, one particular flew A7s. He said, yeah, we had a nuclear capability on the A7. You know, we would load one up and go pitch it somewhere and... We do this, you know, like over the top thing where we throw it out there, way out there, so we could get away. But and I never thought sure of it being on a helo. I'm not sure that the A7s uh, or the A4 that my father flew. He said the same thing. You know, you had that. You'd pop up, you'd let yeah. it go, and then you'd roll inverted and get out of dodge. You know, it's yeah. like and burn. You know, deliver it and get out of town. But my father told me, yeah, he had a, uh, he told me this just before he he passed several years ago. He said, yeah, we all had designated targets and he had one that was in Bulgaria somewhere. And, but I think he said that I'm not sure that that was going to be a return trip. You know, you got, you probably got to get through some air defenses as yeah. well, let yeah. alone the nuclear blast. So yeah. for a helicopter, I think it's like, yeah, have your will written and your <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> have your will updated and yeah, and uh, on file. Yeah, that's amazing. I had no idea. Yeah, carrying a B sixty one, and that's a big piece of metal too. That is not a small thing to have hanging from any aircraft. Because you know, like I said, I've I've been up close to a B sixty one. Matter of fact, there's one on display in the uh, the the Air Museum in Denver. Wings over the Rockies has yeah. one next to an FB one eleven. And I remember it had a maroon nose cone on the one on display. And that meant it was a live nuclear weapon. Oh, geez. Yeah. If the B-61 was a live nuclear weapon, it had a like metallic maroon nose cone on it. So all of the airplanes that were on alert during the 80s at Pease when I was there, all the B-61s had these metallic maroon colored nose cones on them. If it was inert, it had like a black or a blue one or something like that. Isn't that crazy? I still remember yeah. that, the small detail. Yeah. So. And when I read this, I didn't bother to look. So I don't, yeah, or to like research or Google yeah. search what these things look like. So I'll have to do that to get a sense of how big these things were. But And the um, crazy thing is they're still using them now. Last year, I saw an article, Steve, where they were working on the B61-10 because now it's GPS aided. It's GPS guided. It's oh, no longer yeah. this thing that you just drop somewhere and you have the parachute come out. They had a parachute in the back of them that would pop out so that it would give the crew time to run away from it. But uh, 
now it's GPS aided. They were dropping it from an F-15E over the uh, Edwards range. So that thing is still around. Wow. That crazy. Any other versions? Any other, any other? uh, Those are the ones that I really, I took some notes down on and and talked to this book list, a whole bunch of other things that I was. What's the name of the book? If you don't mind me asking. Um, (laughs) That's a good question Uh, here. I'm going to show you. It says the H3C King in action. This is a, a series of things. I don't know. Let's. Oh, see. yes. I know exactly which ones you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. I have those because I'm a model builder. Yeah. Uh, Squadron Signal puts those out. Yeah. It says aircraft number 150 Squadron Signal Publications. Right. Yep. Okay. Yep. They do a uh, lot of those kinds of things. That's primarily primarily what I looked at. I looked at that little, yeah. uh, little bit at that NATOPS manual that I had sent you excerpts from. from yeah. The drone, yeah. But yeah. Uh, there's one question I got to ask you. Sure. I noticed when I was doing your your illustration, your drawing, there's a big shield in front of the engine intakes. What was that for? Was that just to keep stuff from going down in the engine? Because at first they didn't have that. And then I noticed that they had that big, huge, <laughs> I don't know what you call it, air dam in front of the engine. Yeah, it's called a, an ice shield. Um, uh, I'm okay. scrolling through my notes here because that was first put on, I don't know if it was the Bravo or the Charlie model. But yeah, when it originally came out, they didn't have those. Those intakes were exposed to the wide open, just like a, you know an A7 and a 15 uh-huh. They added those. It's in here somewhere. I just don't know. That's okay. Um, it's just to keep stuff from going into the engine intake though, huh? Yeah. And um, that was probably very helpful for my uh, experience I talked about over Italy when uh, we got into some icing conditions because that could have, as I said already, that could have ended badly. Yeah. <laughs> the ice shield probably helped keep those engines uh, purring along nicely for us. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what I thought was cool is, you know, you had what was it? Desert ducks written across the one that is the one picture you yeah. showed me. Yeah. yeah. That was There's the all I kinds of things it. they write across it. That was uh, the detachment out of Bahrain. Yeah. It was better known than the home squadron back in uh, Norfolk or Jacksonville initially, and then Norfolk, Virginia. And I think that was a bit of a source of uh, irritation for COs at the time because it, it brought the mail. Everyone in the Gulf on the ships knew, oh, the desert docks coming. Great. Our mail, mail call. Yeah. <laughs> it was very, very famous, uh, more so than the squadron back home itself. So, yeah, you mentioned um, that earlier in the episode. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Everybody knew who the desert duck was. They sure did. So the only other little tidbit of information I would offer, again, going back to your colleague, Jello. Yeah. uh, He did an episode about two years ago on the E2 Hawkeye. Uh Uh, And in that, it was pointed out that it is the longest tenured airframe in the air wing today. Yeah. Um, I would need to research this more and try and find out because when the H3 first came out, I'm not sure that, I don't know when the first HS squadron stood up, the ASW uh-huh. squadron. So they may have gone out as one or two aircraft detachments and may not have been, may not have been part of the actual air wing. But I suspect it's quite possible that until the H3 had been transitioned to the 60 for those ASW squadrons, it may have held that title as long as tenured uh, up until that point. Uh, and since then, the E2 has obviously taken that moniker. But um, I think the H3 might have been the longest tenured up to the point it went away and was replaced by the 60. Can't verify that I would need to do more research, but I think that's a distinct possibility. I talked to Royce Williams, the guy who shot down the four Russian MiG-15s during the Korean War. Oh, yeah. And he had the first detachment of E-2 Hawkeyes on his, in his air wing in 1966. Okay. The very first E-2As that showed up with this radar capability. And they're like going, what are we going to do with this? And that was the summer of 66. Yeah. I, when that I know. Was. I know the H3's first flight was like 1961 or give or take. Yeah. I just don't know if the actual squadrons were incorporated into air wing and that made it the longest tenured at the time. I don't know, but I know they've been around. They had been around a long time. Okay. The last H3 was stricken from the Navy inventory in 2006. Uh, same air as the F-14 Tomcat went away, I believe. But uh, um from my, yeah. my old squadron, it was the last squadron to fly the H three before they've completely. <laughs> the 60s. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. 
that the thing flew for that long, 40 years. Yeah. Wow. It is, you know, uh, you know, and, and that is unfortunately kind of a sad commentary on our military right now. KC-135 is 60 years old. E-2 Hawkeye was in the 60s, like the H-3. The B-52 is getting re-engined. It's getting re-engined with Rolls-Royce engines. And they think that thing might go to 2080 or something like that. 2060. That's 100 years that airplane will be around. And I don't know if you listened to the episode last week. I I interviewed a guy. Yeah, Chico. Look at how relevant the B-52 has remained because they've keep adding these different missions to it. You know, you've always heard, Steve, you go to war with the army you have, not the army you want. Right. And we keep thinking of different things to do or put on a lot of these old airframes because, as you know, the acquisition system now, I heard that the F-35 may be the first trillion dollar government program. That sounds about right. Isn't that crazy? Well, brother, anything else? No, I think that covers it. I think we've covered most of the versions. I think the versions that people are familiar with anyway. And I just wanted to share that Air Force side for you. I had no idea until I read this thing. I was like, wow, Air Force has been kind of knee deep in this thing for a bit. Yeah, we have. When I got to Kadena in the 90s, that's what we had. We had H3s. Yeah. We hadn't gone to Pavehawks yet until like two or three years later. And uh, and if I remember right, we had like 67 or 68 models or something like that for a long time until our MH60s showed up. But what an incredible vehicle and helo and what a tremendous history the Sea King yeah. has had and, and and the things that it's done. Holy smokes. Thanks for sharing this history, man. Oh, thanks for thanks for allowing me to do it and have me on your show. This is uh, like my Navy career. It's it's very humbling. It's been great. Well, you know, and and I think all of us look back at some of the experiences we've had, Steve, and we go, wow, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I was a part of that or or whatever. So again, brother, hey, it's been great to have you on the show, man. This has been some great stuff of the history and the missions that the the Sea King helicopter has, has done. Thanks for being on with us. Oh, thank you, Mark. It was it was a privilege to do so. To all of my listeners out there, this is why I do this. I had no idea that the Navy SH-3 Sea King helicopters had a nuclear mission for a while. It's always fun to go back and hear the history of the modifications to a helicopter or any aircraft for that matter. I mean, look at how many versions there were of the ME-109 and the Focke-Wulf 190 for crying out loud. I appreciate Steve Bates coming on in uh, the second half and giving us a history of SH-3 Sea King helicopter. This episode of the Lessons from the Cockpit show is sponsored by Wall Pilot, custom aviation art for the walls of your home, office, or hangar. As Steve mentioned, I'm working on an SH-3 print. Don't have it done yet, but it will be up on the Wall Pilot webpage pretty soon. You can stick them to your car and outside. I've had several people that have them on boats now. Some of the patches have been on their cars and their vehicles. So I know that they're waterproof and will stick for quite a while. This and previous episodes of the Lessons from the Cockpit Show can be found on my website, marcusera.com, under the podcast pull-down box. Please share these with uh, friends, family, and loved ones. And hey, if you're driving somewhere for Thanksgiving or Christmas, you've got something to listen to while you're doing so. Some great aviation stories and lessons learned that are found here on my podcast. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Lessons from the Cockpit. And we'll talk to you again next week as we interview some of the most fascinating, intriguing pilots, maintainers, aircrew members, and aviation enthusiasts from all over the world.